Hamartiology, of course, is the study of sin. It's one of the the major categories of theology. And so hamartiological comes from the Greek hamartia, which is going to become very important for us to understand Paul's hamartiology. The hamartiological catena. A catena is a series of closely linked verses that illustrate a point or that bring about a disclosure. The hamartiological catena. And also, the catchword that I think I really want you to be emphatic about, and I'm going to teach this tonight in an uncharacteristically bite-sized pieces for a while because this is very important doctrine. It's called all of humanity in all of its times. And for that, I want you to become aware of two terms of nomenclature, two vocabulary terms that are going to bring the doctrine of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ to its crescendo. And that's the first word is diachronic. And on Mother's Day, there's an illustration of this. And we have the Mother's Day message, a a somewhat of a transcript that will be on the tape table along with the items that can be collected for the Salvation Army food drive in May, which I forgot to announce. But diachronic or diachronic and then simultaneity. Simultaneity. In the little doctrine that you'll see, you'll see that M. Welker's Mother's Day tribute, who is my mother, or who was my mother, answers and illustrates and illuminates this rather tremendously. Diachronic or diachronic means through the whole span of time, through the whole span, for example, of a person's life. Or in our doctrine, it's going to be through the whole span of all the times and seasons of all of God's creation and the history of all mankind. Simultaneity means, and this I got help, believe it or not, Tony Sadar didn't speak in my absence, but I was thinking on something that he's been speaking on. One of the main themes that he's been teaching on is perspective. And it finally dawned on me to rightly divide this, it was a kind of a differentiation of consciousness that came into my mind while I was away and meditating on it, that my teaching on horizon, its counterpart is perspective. You have to have both. The horizon is what is viewed. The perspective is the place from where it is viewed. From the place of a high and lofty place, which is God's viewpoint, the divine viewpoint, God can see all and survey and even assess all of the history of created reality and all of the history of mankind diachronically all through its time, but he can see it all and assess it all simultaneously. So he sees the simultaneity in simultaneity in his omnipresence, And in his omniscience, as well as in his omnipotence and love, he's able to assess or give an estimate of the human condition. 
So diachronic and simultaneity or simultaneous, two words that are going to figure prominently, if not directly tonight, ultimately. And the catch verse, the watch word that you want to look for, for our future here is Ephesians 1.10. Simply going to say that because it talks about in the fullness of times, which brings together both the diachronic nature and the simultaneous nature of all things, that they all come together in Christ, and that's God's plan, God's mystery in toto. So with those two things set, we'll continue. By definition, a katina, C-A-T-E-N-A, is a closely linked series as of writings or geographical features. That's from my favorite dictionary, at least up to now, American Heritage College Dictionary, 5th edition. And this suits the next segment on the right flank of Romans perfectly, or the left flank, make that, the left flank of Romans. Here we have what I call a homardiological catena, a catena of verses that establishes Paul's homardiology or his view and his definition of what sin is. It's closely linked series of verses, especially from the Psalms, in fact, almost exclusively from the Psalms, from 310 to 318, with a few sprinkled in from Isaiah, and with a nod to Ecclesiastes 720, which is really not as good as the Psalms in this because Ecclesiastes is a human perspective, God's perspective on all of humanity all at once, the entirety of humanity diachronically, simultaneously viewed by God, is in radical sinfulness since the fall, and that radical sinfulness is something which means what we call total depravity. Calvinistic doctrine teaches that, and I think rightly. Total deviation of all humanity from standards of rectitude and total inability to extract oneself from being subordinated to that supra-human power. Perhaps one more word, and that's supra-human, not super-human. If you say superhuman, you're talking about a human with super strength. If you call, if you say suprahuman, you're talking about a power that is not human and is beyond human. And no matter what, how strenuous a person resists, they cannot overcome the power of sin. This becomes one of the bases for understanding what apocalyptic doctrine is, what apocalyptic language is. So, a closely linked series of verses. You see these especially in Hebrews, and Brian made an excellent Hebrews connection in his teaching. Hebrews is famous for catenas of verses from the scriptures where the writer uses the device, and again, and again, and again, it says, and again, it says, and still again, it says. It's a very powerful and effective rhetorical tool if you're making a case or pleading an argument, as Paul is throughout Romans. Now, Paul 
in using our martial arts analogy, Paul actually at this point grabs his opponent and jumps off a cliff into this waterfall of verses. He takes him with him in a stunning move of rhetorical jujitsu. He uses the teacher's own teaching against himself. He takes him, grabs him, and this is an analogy, jumps off this waterfall, this cascade of verses with him, and takes him with him. Because he says, you and I know that you have taught these same verses as a Jewish teacher, and I have taught these same verses as a Jewish teacher of the Scripture, and we have both indicted, both Jew and Gentile, under sin. And you know this. And so he's finishing off an argument that began all the way back in 118. This is more than a bash on the heathen which is Romans one eighteen to 32. This is a bringing forth of a universal homardiology. Remember, the purpose of God or the purpose of Paul in Romans is to develop a universal homardiology which sets up a universal soteriology or a universal saving act of God in Christ. And that has the effect of bringing a, an unexperienced or as yet experienced unity to the saints in Rome, and that in turn has a domino effect of producing missiological effect in all the way in Spain. And that's what Romans is all about in that sense. And so he takes the teacher with him in our analogy, grabs his opponent, jumps with him down this cascade of verses to show that all human beings are under sin, And he concludes with the fact that no one can be justified, rectified, or set right, and thus delivered from that suprahuman power and that divine indictment by doing the works of the law. So Paul legitimately takes this teacher with him down these falls, as I call this katina, because he and the teacher in their teaching and preaching careers, have used these very verses to indict both Gentiles and Jews as being under sin. Please notice, if you back up just a little bit into 3.9, this is where we landed sometime in the past month or so. He uses the word we, first person plural, we, in 3.9. Now he's talking to this teacher, this opposing teacher, and I do adopt in great measure Douglas Campbell's view on this, and he says, because we, in verse 9, that's you and I, teacher, as those who proclaim the truth of the Hebrew Scriptures as teachers of Torah, we have previously accused everyone. We have previously accused or charged or indicted everyone both Jews and Greeks, of being under the power of sin. That's a very important bellwether term. Hupo hamartia. Hupo, H-U-P-O in the English transliteration, means to be under the power, the domination of something else or someone else. Hupo. And so... As we have seen in Romans 3.9, we have a bellwether phrase. In fact, the whole phrase is huf 
hamartian, and then preceded by pantas, all, one of Paul's 75 uses of the term all in Romans, making it a primary catchword. So the phrase in its wider sense is huf hamartian, and then eni. So it's, well, let's just do the English. It is all under the power, all under the power of sin, hamartian. All under the power of sin. That's all, both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, which is a term for all Gentiles, are under the power of sin. And here's where Paul reveals what we call apocalyptic language. We really have to define what apocalyptic means today because it's, mis- it's a misunderstood term even by some of the better theologians. Apocalyptic, the, the apocalyptic view of sin is Paul's view of sin. To be under something is to be subject to its power. So to Paul, sin is first of all revealed to be a suprahuman power. It's a suprahuman power. It's a power more than equal to the most strenuous human resistance. A power that is more than equal to the most strenuous human resistance. So apart from the overpowering grace of God, and this is a wonderful principle, apart from the overpowering grace of God, all of humanity is under the power of sin and complicit with it, colluding with it, conspiring with it, agreeing with it, fulfilling its will, whether willingly and willfully, blatantly and with bluster, which is the way a lot of it's happening today. People blatantly and with great bluster are willfully controlled by sin or just as bad, unwillingly, and covertly controlled by it. When God views all of humanity, he doesn't just see their deeds and their actions, he sees their intents and their motives. He sees the heart, the mentality, and even more importantly, the intentionality. And so, either willingly or unwillingly, and covertly, sometimes, if not often, under a Self-righteous disguise. People are complicit with sin. When Jesus said to the Pharisees, you had, before I came, you had a cloak, a cover for your sin. But now in the light of Jesus Christ, that cloak was stripped away and they were revealed to be just as sinful as the terrible heathen and pagans that they always preached against. If not worse, if not worse. In fact, Jesus said, greater is your accountability to them. Paul's aim here is to apocalypse. Let's take apocalypse and turn it into a verb because Paul does, apocalypto. Paul's aim here is to apocalypse, which means to dramatically disclose a universal homardiology in order to set up a soteriology. Now, I want this is kind of a 
theological. I've been going theological now for the past 12 or 13 years. Soteriology is the study of salvation. Of course, the word soter means savior. Sozo, the verb, means to save. It's a Greek term, and it's very proper to name the study of salvation as soteriology. In my view, and my view still has, of course, to be tested and found whether right or wrong, but I think that Christology, which is the study of Christ, equals soteriology. That There is no way that we can talk about salvation or soteriology without talking about Christology, and therefore we come up with USSJC, the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. So I think we can talk about a soteriological Christology or a Christological soteriology. And I'm not trying to just play with words here. Someday I'd like to do something in terms of theology. I'm not, I don't think I'm ready for it yet. I don't think I'm uh, sophisticated enough to do that yet, but we're coming to it. Christology and soteriology. In fact, the name Jesus, we, his name shall be called Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. His people, as we know from Paul's writings and John's writings, are all people, all people, not just Israel after the flesh. And so the name Jesus means salvation. It means Yehoshua, Yahweh, in the act of saving. So I don't think we can separate soteriology from Christology. And so this, Paul's aim here is to disclose a universal homardiology in order to set up a soteriology. You know what he's doing? He's doing something like Jesus did with the woman that was caught in the act of adultery and brought before him by the self-righteous. And he says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone at her. And they all dropped the stones and walked away from the oldest to the youngest. The oldest are more tending to understand their own sinfulness down to the youngest who think still naively that they can somehow avoid sin. Paul's doing the same thing here. He sees in Rome a lot of judgmentalism going on. That's the right flank in Romans 14. He sees a lot of despising of one another. He sees a lot of judgment of one another, which is causing great division, and it's rooted in a group bias And so he's using the same rationale as Jesus by saying, look, we're all under sin. So who gets to throw the first stone at his brother? This is the uh, the similar analogy. This is a similar, well, let's call it the law of similarity. Paul's intention then is to set up a soteriology or better, a Christology. That is redeeming and rectifying. I'm giving you six adjectives for this Christology. It is redeeming and rectifying, emancipating and elevating, unconditional and universal, two more, transforming and triumphant. So Paul's intent is to bring about a Christology That is redeeming and rectifying, emancipating and elevating, unconditional and universal, triumphant and transforming. 
So you can't fall to the accusation that this gospel is a license to sin because it not only liberates, if that all it did, if all it did was liberate, then it could be considered an aid to sin, but it not only liberates, but transforms. Rectification is both a liberation and a transformation. That's why Paul goes into Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8, 1 to 13, Romans 12, 1 to 3, and onward. The Christian life, as it's called, which we will really get to in a way that we haven't before. So his intention is not simply to present a universal Christological soteriology. In other words, he didn't write Romans to teach universal salvation in Christ or by Christ. He didn't do that to do that. But rather, it's all the more pronounced a truth because he's making a universal soteriology effective to create unity in the diversity of saints in Rome. If all are under sin and all are redeemed by an act beyond themselves in God, then what does someone have? What stone does one have in one's hand that he has the right to throw at another? And you begin to see the throwing down of the swords and shields and the taking up of the sword and the shield against principalities and powers that resist this message instead of fighting among one another. So Paul's intention may also be called local. When he wrote Romans, he wrote it to the Roman saints. It's a local intention through the spirit. But on the other hand, the spirit's intention is evidently universal. In other words, the effect of Romans is supposed to reach our own time and it's supposed to be universal in its horizon and its effectiveness. Paul's intention is local, though the Spirit's intention is evidently universal. Paul's aim is to direct this argument in his own time. Paul's aim is to make this argument in his own time. The Spirit of Christ intends that the argument of Romans is to be effective on the level of our time, our present time, by bringing forth the illuminating vision of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. I'm not tired of the term yet. Maybe you are. And the universally rectifying impact of his atoning death. I'll say that again because it's important. The Spirit of Christ And all doctrine, including Romans, is God-breathed. The Spirit's intention intends the argument in Romans to be effective on the level of our own time, to bring unity in the diversity of saints in our own time by bringing forth the illuminating vision of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the unifying or the universally rectifying impact of his atoning death. Both the Spirit and Paul have a missiological aim. Here's another element of theology, missiology. Missiology is simply the study of missions. God is all about missiology because God sent his Son on a mission, and the Son and the Father sent the Spirit on a mission, two divine missions, make up one divine invasion 
a rescue mission to rescue all of creation. So missiology also involves the church as an apostolate, a church as an ambassage, a group of ambassadors. They go forth into all the world saying, stop resisting the reconciliation that has already happened in Christ. So, both the Spirit and Paul have a missiological aim, that is, to bring people to the obedience of faith, which means a participation in Jesus' faithfulness to God, to bring it about. Also, to bring about an overflowing hope, a hope that overflows from one to another, a cup that overflows from one to another, and a knowledge of the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, I'm going to ask you to do something in the second part of the message. Let's jump, together with Paul and the teacher, down these falls. Romans 3.10. As it is written... A formula that Paul uses 14 times effectively in Romans, something we have to explore again and again. As it is written, the thesis verse of Romans is based on that. Kathos gegraptai. As it is written, Paul saw the mystery of God in toto, as Peter did in Acts 3.21. As all the prophets spoke, but they didn't understand what they were saying when they spoke. That in all the scriptures, God was speaking of his mystery to sum up everything in Christ, to restore all things in him. Paul saw it that way. If you see the scriptures that way, you have a radical change of thinking. You have a radical epistemological transformation in your mind. If you don't see the scriptures that way, then you're going to say, well, Jews are going to hell if they don't believe in Jesus. Mormons and cultists are all going to hell. Bad people are going to hell. Good people. You're going to make a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous that Paul does not make. And you'll be classed with all those who are scattering unbelievers from Christ instead of gathering them to Christ. And therefore talking all about missions but doing everything really against it. As Jesus said to the Pharisees, you guys are all mission-oriented. You circumvent, you circumnavigate land and sea to make a disciple, a convert. And what you do is you make him twofold the child of Gehenna as you are, meaning the Gehenna of A.D. 70, the judgment of A.D. 70, the liability of that judgment. So here we have, as it is written... In Romans 1.17, as it is written, the righteous one will live by his faithfulness. The righteous one being Jesus Christ. We have much more to say in Romans 1.17, the thesis verse, but let's stay lean here. As it is written, there is not a righteous person, not even one. Very emphatic here. There is not a righteous person, not even one. Now, who made that assessment? God made that assessment. Yahweh, the God of Israel, made that assessment because all of this comes from Romans 3, 10 to 12, comes from Psalm 14, 1 through 3, and Psalm 51, 1 through 3, and it's all preceded by this. Yahweh looked down from heaven on all the human race, 
be aware now that these two words diachronic and simultaneous means that God looked upon the human race not just in a snapshot of time, not in, say, 2000 BC, he looked down on the human race, the few million people on the earth and made this assessment. No, God looked down from his height in heaven from the perspective of omnipresence, omniscience, and omnipotence. And he saw all of the human race diachronically through all of its times, all of its seasons, in all of its cultural settings, in all of its historical sequences, simultaneously, all at once. That's God's view, you see. We've got to see as God sees to get this thing right. If we see as man sees, we'll do what Ecclesiastes 7.20 says. And 7.20, it's a man's view. He says, well, there's nobody who's consistently righteous all his life. Somebody sins sometime. Well, that's a human assessment. God has much more radical. He says man is incapable of being anything but sinful. He's under the power of sin. So I don't group Ecclesiastes 7.20 with the radical estimate of God or the radical assessment of God on humankind in Psalm 14, 1 to 3, Psalm 53, 1 to 3. Now, it's true that whenever Paul makes a citation of a verse, you should look before it and after it at a wider, broader context. I'm not doing that tonight. I probably won't do that too much in Romans because I'm trying to stay lean in the exegesis here to make some points. That could be for another time, or you can do that on your own. But I think A.T. Robertson got it right when he wrote, this sentence is like a motto, M-O-T-T-O, for all the rest, a summary for what follows. I think he's right about that. Not even one is righteous. Who's saying that? Yahweh, the one who's omnipresent and therefore present to the past, the present, the future. So, this is not a human assessment of humanity. This is what Yahweh concluded when he surveyed the entire mass of humanity. All of its inner intents and thoughts. When he sees humanity, he doesn't just say, oh, look at all those people. Different cultures, different colors, different this, different that, different genders. That's not the point. He sees all of humankind with all of their mentality and all their intentionality, all their motives, everything about them in and out. So this is what Yahweh concluded when he surveyed the entire mass of humanity, all of its inner intents and thoughts and its outer deeds and practices in all of its times, in all of its times, please notice that, in all of its historical seasons, in all of its settings, simultaneously. When Yahweh looked down from heaven, from the perspective of the high and holy place, in Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, which he shares now with he who is of a crushed spirit, Jesus, who was crucified and raised from the dead. And that's found in Psalm 14.2. I would beg you to at least read those verses sometimes. Psalm 14.2, It is Yahweh who surveys diachronically all of the human race, panhumanly in all of its times, all at once. Yahweh, the God of Israel, from his inerrant, 
perspective. In his high and holy place, Isaiah 57, 15, is the one, capital O-N-E, who concluded that there is not even one righteous person in all the human race in all of its times. All of humanity in all of its times. That's why I began this message by saying, note that catchphrase. It's an interpretive tool. This will come into play in the Unchained Gospel. Let me do a little bit of a penetration into the heart of Romans, Romans 5.8. Just consider it. Now, listen to this carefully. Please listen carefully. This idea, all of humanity and all of its times, will come into play in the Unchained Gospel in supremely significant ways. God is omnipresent. That means he's not only present all throughout spatial reality, but all throughout temporal reality. So he's already present to your future. He's present to your past. He sees you not as a person of a certain age, but he sees you as the person just born, as the person swaddled, as the person in your mother's arms, as the person growing up and going to elementary school as the person in high school, as the inadequate teenager, which I was, as the this and the that up until the present time. He sees the whole simultaneously. And when resurrection happens, it's going to be you in the simultaneity of your diachronic being. It's going to be wonderful. You You won't recognize yourself because it'll be the sum total of all that God sees, but it'll be the sum total of God seeing you. In his son and his son in you. I can't, for one thing, I'm still obsessed, and that's a big word now. I'm obsessed with something, which means that you probably are. But I'm obsessed with resurrection, bodily resurrection, the future hope of it. I'm obsessed with it. In other words, not, I hope, psychologically in an unbalanced way, but. I'm very much looking forward to it. It's what overflows in me as the hope of our future, not just mine, the future of all creation and all humanity. And so all of humanity in all of its times is what Paul is talking about in Romans 5.8 when he says, while we were still sinners. Who's he talking about? A few people in his own time in A.D. 52 or 55 or 57 I can give credence to any of those dates for Romans. Who does he think? Who's he talking about? We, meaning him and his friends, his missionary team? Or is the we that he's speaking about still sinners from the divine perspective that all the human race under the power of sin and still under the power of sin, when God saw that, that's when Christ died. While we All the human race and all of its times were still in sin. Christ died. That is an interpretive tool in which the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ is demonstrated and can only be argued against by the most vicious and the most stubborn self-righteous person. which is a lot of preachers, unfortunately. I'm speaking as one. That's why when people say, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a preacher, but don't hold that against me because it's probably one of the most maligned profession. 
Watch a movie. If there's a preacher in it, he did it. Used to be the butler did it. Now it's the preacher did it. Watch a movie, and if there's a preacher in it, he's the most evil, malicious, lecherous son of a Belial that you've ever seen. So, Yahweh, the God of Israel, makes this assessment. So again, God is omnipresent as well as omniscient. Likewise, he's omnipotent in his ability to survey and review all of his created works in all of the times of their existence and all of the human race in all of its times, sequences, settings, cultures, and histories. A technical way of saying this is that God sees all of the history of the totality of his creation diachronically and simultaneously. To drop a hint, this catchphrase then comes into play with a statement of the unchained gospel in Romans 5.8, in which love is the heart of the matter. But God demonstrated his own love for us. For who? Jews? Greeks? Gentiles? Heathen? Jewish Christians? Christians? Or us, all the human race in all of its times? Because they're all under sin. So while we were yet sinners, refers to all the human race in all of its times, which God assessed as being incapable of extracting themselves from that dominion. So God's grace overpowered. I love Paul's statement. I thank God through Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. So God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, that is under the total control and its complete complicity with sin, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Given this interpretive catchphrase, all of humanity in all of its times, I kind of can guess that the Holy Spirit might even wake you up in the morning. When, uh, when I get up sometimes, what I look for is the first thought. The first thought that comes into my mind. Some scripture, some principle. And I've learned to follow the first thought. Because when I sit down and type, the first thought explodes usually into something, maybe five, six pages until I'm exhausted. First thought. This may be the first thought that you have someday when you're just sitting around or looking at the warm new creation or waking up in the morning, all of humanity in all of its times. We could legitimately conclude that us and we in Romans 5, 8 is all of humanity in all of its times because God had the entire sweep of sinful humanity in mind when Christ died. God so loved the world, the world, the world, all of humanity in all of its times, which only he could survey and assess as being hopelessly and helplessly under the power of a suprahuman element of the cosmos called sin. God so loved the world that he gave his son. That whosoever believes in him, that is, in whomsoever he elicits faith, they not only not perish, because you see, now is the time in which people are being saved and are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18. This is the juncture of two ages. 
No one perishes eternally in hell. All are saved in God's plan. But we're living in a time because of the clash of the ages when some are perishing and some are being saved in time, in history, in their own experience as people. Those who consider the power of the word of the cross as being the power of God for salvation are being saved. Those who consider it to be foolishness are perishing. It may not be painful perishing, but it's a loss of restraint. It's a loss of ability to understand God, to know God, etc. So the point being here that when he speaks of we and us in Romans 5, 8, Not only when God elicits faith in you, you not only stop perishing at that moment, but you enjoy the life of the coming age. Faith is not the means or the instrumentality of our justification. It is a graced participation in Christ whereby we enjoy in some meaningful measure the age to come in the present. We not only are not perishing in our believing, but we're enjoying peace and joy in the believing. The result of the faith that Jesus gives us, and this is something that I have to really understand for my own life because we all have anxiety. This is an age characterized by anxiety. The old passing age is characterized by anxiety because it's a time of loss, it's a time of pain, it's a time of difficulty, it's a time of tribulation. It's a time when things are passing away and you can't clutch onto anything cuz it'll be gone. It's a time of anxiety. But in this time of anxiety, you've got to learn to use your faith. To use your faith which is a hoping for the things to come. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Use your faith to think in terms of the coming age, not in terms of the passing away of the age. That's anxiety. Faith is the anticipation of things to come and things which have come in Christ in some measure, things that do come right now through the ministry of the word. My my words are spirit and life, he says. So, given this interpretive catchphrase, all of humanity in all of its times, we could legitimately conclude interpretively that the us and the we in Romans 5.8 is all of humanity in all of its times because God had the entire sweep of sinful humanity in mind when Christ died. So it's arguable that from the top of the mountain all the way up Mount Golgotha, Jesus looked out not only upon the few people there that were mocking and jeering him, but upon the whole sweep of all humanity in all of its times from the perspective of Calvary. And what did he say? Father, forgive them. Not one of them knows what they're doing because the next verse says they don't, no one understands. No one gets it. No one knows. No one understands. God doesn't hold people accountable for what they don't understand. They don't understand. Can you imagine if they understood what they were doing, that they were penetrating the flesh of Yahweh and nailing him to a tree? Do you think they would understand the full ramifications of that? Thank God 
Thank God we were under the power of sin. So, that the greater power of grace could triumph. So, God had the entire sweep of sinful humanity in mind when Christ died. When God did not spare his son, right at the heart of Romans, Romans 8.32, there's a lamb. A lamb not spared, but slain. Just like Revelation. Paul's epistles in toto form an apocalypse just like Revelation. Because at the heart and throughout is a lamb. Often unnamed as lamb. But nevertheless a lamb. At the heart of Romans 8.32. God did not spare his son but freely. And that means unconditionally handed him over for us all. 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 So this is only one, hopefully tantalizing. I hope I'm enticing you. I hope I'm tantalizing you. A tantalizing hint of the importance of this catchphrase. All of humanity in all of its times. All of creation in all of its times. Check out Ephesians 1.10 sometime. The Katina continues in Romans 3. There is not one who understands. Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. What does this remind me of? I don't know what it reminds you of. It reminds me of Jeremiah 9.24. Let the man or the woman boast in that they know and understand me. None understand. So if we do understand, we should boast that God granted us understanding of him. There is not one. Who understands there is not one who seeks God. I've been seeking God ever since I was two. Really? And I'll tell you something else. They go forth from the womb speaking lies. So there is none. Not one. It's always emphatic who seeks God. Why does he? Constant emphasis on one, one, not one, not one. Because when he gets to Romans 5, the emphasis is going to be on one. The one man, Christ Jesus. The one righteous one. The one righteous act by which all that were under sin are rectified by grace. This is what Romans is. This is what the gospel is. Please, Father, let it be known. Let it be proclaimed. Let it be articulated. And so, there's not one who understands. There's not one who seeks God. In other words, if there's ever to be understanding of God, the understanding has to be God-granted. God-granted. Paul prayed for it, that you might receive a spirit of wisdom, that you may understand what is the hope of your calling, etc. If there's ever to be the understanding of God, it has to be God granted. Karl Barth's great theological dictum was this. Only God reveals God. If there is anyone who seeks God, and there are those who seek God, if anyone who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So is that a contradiction in Romans of Romans 3.11 in Hebrews 11.6? No, it's simply saying if there is anyone who seeks God, 
the seeking would have to be divinely ignited, divinely elicited, just like faith. Remember, this is the whole human race diachronically considered simultaneously by the omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere and at all times present, an omnipotent God who is wholly and entirely other, O-T-H-E-R, capital O, than the warped creation and sinful humanity. You can't make God like the warped creation and sinful humanity. But God will make the creation and sinful humanity like himself. When we see him, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. So in closing, the use of not one here, not one, is setting up the reader for the one man, Adam, in whom all die, and the one man, Jesus Christ, whom Paul shows in Romans 5, Romans 5 shows both Adam and Christ, the final Adam, to be the two destiny-bearing human beings. The two human beings that bear the destiny of all of humanity. Adam, in whom all of humanity die. Christ, in whom all humanity are made alive. Because when he died, all died. So when he rose, guess what happened to him? He rose as all. Because I live, you will live also, Ricky. That verse we discussed yesterday, Romans Make that John 14, 19. So, Romans 3, 12. All of them, without exception, I love the term because a universal homardiology sets up a universal soteriology. All of them, without exception. Who made this assessment? Who made this evaluation? God. All of them, without exception, have deviated At the same time and together, they have become depraved. So I have, for poetic reasons, deviated and depraved. That means literally they've become worthless, just like their idols. There's not one who does right by acting benevolently. Christotes is a fruit of the Spirit. It means kindness or benevolence. There's not one, he says who does right by acting benevolently. There is not one, in other words, who acts in pure self-sacrificing love with no view to one's own benefit like God does. Until God pours that love out in the heart, it ain't going to happen. And so you get the psychologists that are on television and you get the psychiatrists that say, Man doesn't act unless there's a benefit in him for himself. So how's that working for you is the pragmatic psychology of our time. Is it biblical? No, not at all. Not at all. God's self-sacrificing and self-giving love is what's poured out in our hearts. It doesn't look at things and say, how will they benefit me? It looks at others and say, says, how can I benefit them? I can't make that kind of love happen in me. Are you nuts? I could never have that. But God pours out that love in our hearts. And it begins to burgeon and blossom. 
All of them, without exception, have deviated. At the same time and together, they have become depraved. There is not one who does right by acting benevolently. Christotes is only a fruit of the Spirit. It only happens when the Spirit dominates you rather than sin or the flesh. Not even a single one. I'll end on that note. Not even a single one. Paul could easily add here, not a single Greek. Not a single Roman. Not a single man. Not a single woman. Not a single Jew. Not one. Romans 3, 10 to 12 is at the top of the falls, and we're falling. And the leading verses of the homardiological catena, all from Romans 3, 10 to 12, are all from Psalm 14, 1 through 3, and Psalm 53, 1 through 3, where it is written. And perhaps there's a nod here to Ecclesiastes 7.20, which my Christian Standard Bible points to, though I would say not really, because that verse is rather the observation of a man. Discern the spirits. Understand the difference between a man speaking in the scriptures of his own assessment and God speaking in scriptures of his assessment. God's assessment of the human race is totally, radically homardiological without grace. Man's assessment of the human race is, well, some people are good and some people are very bad. We are good as Americans. They are bad, evil as so-and-so, someone else. We are on the right side. We're, they're on the bad side. Paul does everything he can throughout all of Romans to demolish the distinctions that we make between the righteous and the unrighteous. He does so through the double-edged sword of a universal homardiology and a universal Christological soteriology that makes us all drop the stones we're ready to throw at each other. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity. May we all enjoy the peace and joy that comes in the believing that is elicited by you, believing in this message as ignited by you. We thank you for it in Christ's name.